Hi, everybody. I'm Maurice Merrick, and this is another hot lap from the Horsepower Heritage Podcast. Don't forget to follow the show on your favorite podcast app and share it with your friends. So you've seen those old science fiction magazines or maybe a copy of Popular Mechanics from the 50s with a jet-powered car on the cover, right? Well, one company actually came close to making jet cars an everyday reality. I'll tell you about it coming up after this. This hot lap is brought to you by Model Citizen Diecast. They sell collector-grade scale model cars. And when you shop online, just use the code HERITAGE at checkout and you'll get 10% off your order. That's a special deal for my listeners. Choose from a great selection of models in 143rd scale, 118th scale, and even the ginormous 18th scale. Just go to ModelCitizenDieCast.com and check out their great selection. Race cars, street cars, muzzle cars, exotics, and more. Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. And now here's today's hot lap. In the last half of the 1940s, it was clear that the jet age had arrived. Great Britain and Germany had pioneered turbojet engine development in the 1930s, and both countries flew early jets in combat at the tail end of World War II. The United States was just a little bit behind the curve, but they quickly caught up. The advantage of jet power over piston engines in aircraft was astounding, with unbeatable acceleration, speed, and high-altitude performance. Jet engines also have far fewer moving parts. They're smooth and reliable. By the early 1950s, jet airliners entered commercial service. So it's no surprise that someone would attempt to apply jet engine technology to the automobile. The first ones up to the drawing board were the Rover Company, who had a head start since they'd contracted in 1942 to build the turbojet engine developed by Frank Whittle, the father of British jet technology. So starting in 1945, Rover developed a car they called Jet One, a two-seat mid-engine experimental sports roadster. During testing, it reached speeds of over 150 miles per hour. Rover continued development of the concept into the 1960s with a handful of coupes and sedans, and they even built racing cars in cooperation with BRM, running them at Le Mans. But the problem was that fuel economy on these cars was abysmal, like 6 miles per gallon. From 1953 to 1959, General Motors had a series of show cars called the Firebirds. All the Firebird cars had jet turbine engines and outlandish rocket ship styling with large air intakes, vertical stabilizers, and bubble canopy cockpits. They were more or less technology demonstrators, and they showed what GM was capable of doing. They also had novelty value, and they sold plenty of tickets for GM's traveling Motorama shows, but that's about as far as it went. However, General Motors and Ford both saw a place for jet turbines in commercial trucking, and they each developed experimental tractor-trailer rigs during the early 60s. Fiat also had a car in the early 50s called the Turbina, but they weren't able to overcome the problems of heat and fuel consumption. And that brings us to the company that took the gas turbine automobile concept closer to everyday reality than any other, Chrysler Corporation. Their turbine program was spearheaded by an engineer named George Hubner. During the war, he'd been in charge of the team that developed a 2,500 horsepower V-16 aircraft engine, which, by the way, was the first Chrysler engine to have hemispherical combustion chambers. And Hubner was later in charge of designing Chrysler's highly successful Hemi V8s. By the early 1950s, Chrysler had a missile systems division, and Hubner worked with Werner von Braun to develop, test, and build the Redstone rocket which put the first U.S. satellite, Explorer 1, 
and the first astronaut, Alan Shepard, into space. So you can see how George Huebner must have been very enthusiastic about the promise of new technology, and he wasn't afraid of experimentation. Okay, so now would probably be a good time to explain just what exactly a gas turbine engine is all about. I mean, we all know what a jet engine looks like, right? But what's inside? Well, it's a cylinder, first of all. And at the front, you have an air intake with a series of fans. And each one has a smaller diameter and finer blades. The fans compress incoming air, which flows into a combustion chamber or a burner. Next, the compressed air gets mixed with fuel and ignited. And then the hot exhaust gases pass through another series of fan blades. This time, the blades get coarser and the diameter of the fans get larger. This is the turbine section, and basically in a Chrysler turbine engine, it's a windmill with two fans. The first fan is turning a shaft that runs to the front of the engine, and that's what turns the compressor blades at the intake phase. Of course, instead of using jet thrust at the exhaust nozzle to move the car, power is transmitted from the second fan through another shaft, and then into a reduction gear, which couples with the transmission, and finally, power gets to the wheels. So propulsion is ultimately mechanical. Chrysler supposedly achieved an 80% reduction in total parts compared to a piston engine and less than 20% of the moving parts, those being the blades and the shafts, and it was 200 pounds lighter. To start the turbine, they used a conventional electric motor, but instead of disengaging from the engine once the fans were turning, it remained connected and it became an electrical generator at that point. So when you hear a turbine-powered car start up, there's no characteristic sound of cranking just a faint whistle that gets louder as the engine spools up, like a giant vacuum cleaner, really. And the Chrysler turbine spun at 18,000 RPM at idle. A single spark plug is all you need to ignite the fuel, and once the burner is lit, you don't even need that. Probably the biggest problem Chrysler had to solve was the exhaust gas temperature, in excess of 1,700 degrees. The solution was a pair of gizmos they called regenerators. Basically just two spinning circular heat exchangers that pick up hot exhaust gas and transfer the heat right back into the combustion chamber. So by the time the exhaust exits the tailpipe, it's about the same temperature as it would be in a conventional car. By the way, the exhaust pipes were sort of a rounded rectangular shape and they flowed at least three to four times the volume of a conventional car exhaust. There are stories about the exhaust melting asphalt, but that's nonsense. You can put your hand near the tailpipe on a Chrysler turbine car and not get burned. No other manufacturer had conquered the exhaust gas problem, and besides reducing the heat, it increased fuel economy. So with the major engineering problems addressed, Chrysler put the turbine engine, codenamed CR1, into a stock 1954 Plymouth Belvedere, and they tested it for about eight months before unveiling it to the public at the dedication of the Chrysler Proving Grounds, a massive testing facility in Chelsea, Michigan. Next, they took a 1956 Plymouth and rebadged it the Chrysler Turbine Special. On March 30, 1956, the car left the Chrysler building in New York on a cross-country road trip. Four days later, at 8.55 in the morning, it pulled up to City Hall in Los Angeles. Along the way, the car was subjected to all sorts of real-world driving, from stop-and-go traffic to dirt roads to the long ribbon of Route 66. At this point, the U.S. interstate system was in early stages of construction. George Hubner drove the car himself, with a caravan of support personnel and vehicles trailing him. Total distance, 3,020 miles, averaging 13 miles per gallon. And by the way, the Chrysler turbine would burn just about any fuel. Gasoline, diesel, even rubbing alcohol. 
Once they even put tequila in it on a publicity tour in Mexico. By this time, there was high optimism at Chrysler for this power plant of the future, and it captured the public's imagination too. The second generation turbine, the CR2, was installed in a 59 Plymouth for a road trip from Detroit to New York. Several other testbed cars followed, and then in 1960, they unveiled one of the most radical show cars ever, the Chrysler Turboflight. Built in Italy by Ghia, it was a pale green metallic two-door four-seater, and the last Chrysler project styled under the direction of Virgil Exner, who had started the tail fin craze with his forward-look cars in 1955. The turboflight had sort of a shark nose and open front wheel wells and a bubble canopy that lifted when the doors were opened and a giant rear wing that actually functioned like the speed brake on a jet airplane. The one thing it didn't have was a working turbine engine. It was just a rolling mock-up. After being displayed on the show circuit, the turboflight was destroyed. Since it had been built in Italy, it was subject to a high import duty, which Chrysler didn't want to pay. But they had a much more ambitious plan for the turbine program. In 1962, the company began a publicity campaign asking for volunteers from the public to drive an upcoming fleet of all-new turbine cars, this time with a purpose-built body. The styling was the responsibility of a guy named Elwood Engel, who'd come over from Ford after Virgil Exner had been fired. Engel went to a young designer named Chuck Mashigan, who'd also come over from Ford. He told him he'd be designing the car. Mashigan produced a two-seater mock-up with turbine motif headlamps and jet exhaust taillights, a flattened hood and deck lid, and large air intakes just behind the doors, and they called it the Typhoon Turbine Concept. It bore a striking resemblance to something else Mashigan had worked on at Ford, the 1958 La Galaxy show car. In fact, it's so similar that it's surprising to me that Ford didn't sue Chrysler, especially since some of those styling cues went into the Thunderbird in the early 60s. Most of the Typhoon styling made it to the working model, except that it was now a larger four-seat car. And this was Chrysler's biggest effort yet, really the last step before putting a car into mass production. Fifty-five bodies were built once again by Ghia, fitted with a fourth-generation engine, and all but one were painted in a special color called Turbine Bronze. For some reason, the remaining car was white. In 1963, the Chrysler Turbine car fleet was handed out all over the United States to people who'd signed up for the chance to drive them for two months at a time. The results of this program were excellent. In over a million miles of use, the cars proved reliable and drew a crowd everywhere they went, so much so that some users got sick of all the attention. And the power was reasonable, 130 shaft horsepower, but with about 425 foot-pounds of torque. The two main performance weaknesses of the turbine car were a lag in throttle response of about a second and a half and poor fuel economy. So, what held them back from mass production? Well, a couple things. First, the cost of producing turbine engines was enormous. Just think about the precision involved in manufacturing fans that are turning at 18,000 RPM at idle and up to 40,000 RPM under load. Also, the metallurgy, the heat, everything no one would have wanted to pay the outrageous sticker price they'd have to charge, especially when fuel consumption was so high. And by the mid-1960s, vehicle emission standards were just around the corner. So the cost of re-engineering the turbine to comply with emission regulations was a losing bet. The Turbine Car User Program ended in 1966. Of the 55 cars produced, 5 prototypes and 50 special production cars, most went to the scrap heap. Again, because Chrysler didn't want to pay high import duties on the Italian bodies. 
Nine cars were retained. Today, five of them are still running. Two are owned by Chrysler and one by the St. Louis Museum of Transportation. The last two are in private hands. One is owned by Jay Leno and the other was recently put up for sale and purchased by Stahl's Automotive Collection in Michigan. The other four are in museum collections, but they don't run. Chrysler continued their turbine program under U.S. government grants into the 1980s. The most successful Chrysler product to use a gas turbine engine isn't a car. In the late 1970s, Chrysler's defense division entered into a design competition for a new main battle tank, and they were awarded a $20 billion contract to build them. That became the M1 Abrams. With a 1,500-shaft horsepower gas turbine engine and a top speed of 45 miles per hour, getting only 3.8 miles per gallon. Maybe not so bad, though, considering it weighed 60 tons. And that's the story of the turbine cars. That's all for today's Hot Lap. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to follow the podcast, tell your friends about it, and leave me a five-star review. Horsepower Heritage will be back next week. So until then, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening. <laughs>